Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. It is a joy. It's a privilege. It's an honor to be able to join and worship with you this morning online the best we can during this pandemic. Um, thank you to our worship team for leading us this morning. Thanks for technology working. We have a lot of new things running today. And um, we just know that you could be doing anything with your time at this moment. And you've chosen to be with us. And we are so appreciative. And we do want you to know you might be joining us on Facebook or YouTube or Vimeo. Um, we have uh, what we believe is kind of the best way to connect, the most interactive, kind of participatory way, and that's through our online platform, which you can find at onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. It has our live prayer team, um, ability to communicate and connect with people, our Bible app, note sections, links to our bulletin and connection card, you name it. It's all there. Um, We'd love for you to join us there. Today, as we, we learn, the notes section has all the scriptures we're going to be looking at, as well as our um, connection card questions at the end. So want to make sure you take advantage of that. But wherever you're joining us, even if it's later in the week, we just want you to know how much we appreciate you joining us. Today, we are diving into the final week of our sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. And over the last eight weeks, what we've been doing is exploring these various scriptures, metaphors, visuals within the biblical text that give us different dimensions and expressions of the fruit of love. And as followers of Christ, what we've learned is that we are filled with the Holy Spirit of the resurrected Christ. And when that relationship is cultivated in our lives, it produces the very fruit of the Spirit. And ultimately and specifically, that fruit is love, just as God is love. And the scripture we've looked at over and over again throughout this series is Galatians 5, 22 through 23, that says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. We've learned that this list is not to be understood as this image of a tree that has all these different types of fruits, like apples and pears and oranges and, and what have you. Rather, what we've seen is that all these other words that follow in Galatians might be best understood as amplifying or further specifying what is meant by living out this love in our day-to-day -day lives. And so these descriptions and expressions are inseparable from each other, meaning you can't fully express the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, if you have no patience or kindness. And we've all experienced that where we're trying to show love, but our patience is gone or our ability to be kind is not there. Our ability to show love is hindered. Only all together can we more fully understand God's love and live it out when we hold all of these together. And so today we are talking about self-control, the last one, which is something we automatically, oh, we, we just know, like I got something connected to self-control. So before we begin, um, let's pause and open our time with a word of prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, it is good to be in your presence. We thank you that even as we are sitting in all of our different homes and spaces and locations, you are present with us as close as our very breath. And so we ask you to meet with us, to help us to hear from you, to help us learn from you, um, that we might um, grow in our relationship with you and cultivating the fruit of the Spirit in our lives for your glory. 
We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So throughout this series, we have had kind of a consistent pattern to our teaching time. This is including kind of talking about these actions, what they mean in our current culture, comparing them to what they may have meant to the biblical times and when it was written. We usually have some discussion about some of the barriers that we have in our current culture that make it hard for us to cultivate these in our lives. And then we usually conclude with some kind of action items of how we can collaborate with the Spirit in putting these into practice. And we've been purposely using this word cultivate because it goes so well with the metaphors and languages we see in Scripture, and it also helps us understand how this fruit comes about in our life. Because we all know harvesting fruit is not something that just happens, right? If all we did was toss some seeds on the ground hoping something would happen, the only thing we'd be pretty guaranteed to have is a whole lot of weeds growing. And we all get this, right? We, we have work that we must do, responsibilities we must take, preparations to be made, ongoing attention given daily, and more. But we also know that we can't do it all, right? There's only so much a farmer can do. The rest is up to God. The rest is grace, Which is why all of this we've been talking about for the last eight weeks is rooted in a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, each of the fruit we've discussed so far has followed another pattern as well. Each one has an other-directed relational motivation to them, as well as a clear need of collaboration with the Spirit in order for these to come about in our lives for others to experience. And every one of these distinctions of love has been part of the true character of God. So that's another pattern we've seen. But unlike the other fruit we've discussed, the one we're looking at today, self-control, feels a little different. Why? Because it's got this word self in front of it. And when we think about the idea of self-control, whether it happens or not, it typically rests solely on each individual, right? We either exercise self-control or we don't. We either eat that third piece of cake, or we don't, right? So right off the bat, this idea feels different from some of these other fruit that we've looked at. So what is this talking about? What does this word mean? Well, today, dictionary.com defines self-control as the ability to control oneself, in particular one's emotions and desires, or the expression of them in one's behavior, especially in difficult situations. So we get it. Next definition. Merriam-Webster says it this way. Defines self-control as the restraint exercised over one's own impulses, emotions, or desires. So in short, self-control is control of the self by the self for the sake of the self. Control of the self by the self for the sake of the self. Now, what's interesting about this idea is that pretty much all wisdom traditions recognize how easy it is for humanity to become enslaved to their passions and desires. We see it come up in Buddhism, and we also see that it is a very present reality in the culture for the Greeks, even before the New Testament was ever written. In fact, ancient Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato consider self-control to be the number one most foundational human virtue. In fact, much of Greek thought believed that the most virtuous person was the self-directed person. 
while the weak and despised were those who had little or no control over their passions. Why? Well, because to be driven by passions and desires was to be driven by those temptations and pleasures that were external to the self. And as a result, this was a person who was always under the control of another. And for the Greeks, who were really big on freedom, the highest idea was to master one's desires so that one could be free to enjoy them rather than be enslaved to them. 2 Peter 2.19 touches on it by saying this, people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And if you're human, you have experienced something of this. The question is, is this the idea that we're talking about here in Galatians? Are we talking about control of the self by the self for the sake of the self when we're talking about this distinction of the fruit of the Spirit? Is this the same thing that Socrates and Plato talk about? Well, what's interesting is that the word that's translated here as self-control is the word in Greek, egoratia. And yes, it's the same word that Socrates and Plato and others used. It's translated in various ways, including temperance, continence, moderation. And what we've seen is more recently in our culture, it started to become translated as self-control or self-mastery. But I believe, although it's the same word that the Greeks used, the meaning that Paul is getting at is very different from the Greek thought. And what's interesting is that although this was such a big idea in the biblical culture of the day, the number one thing these people were thinking about, this specific word is only found three times in the entire Bible and three more times if you take into account some various kind of versions of the word. However, we do see language in the Bible with similar ideas about humanity having to turn from the lusts of the flesh or worldly passions. We see that often. In fact, right before our text in Galatians 5, we see this type of language. And I believe if we look at it, we will get a better sense of what Paul's actually talking about when it comes to egratia. So what I want us to do is look a little before our current text in Galatians to chapter 5, verses 13 through 25. So if you have a Bible, feel free to follow along. You can look at the text on the slides or you can use our Bible app. But this is what we're going to be doing, Galatians 5, 13 through 25, which says this. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, 
as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, what we see here is that Paul is speaking in a way that sounds very similar to the ways of the Greek culture, and for that matter, our culture right now. And Paul says, I want you to be free, but the flesh can destroy you. And Paul even lays out what the desires of the flesh are. And they're as common then as they are still today. Sexual immorality, debauchery, drunkenness, envy, rage, hatred, orgies, jealousy, and so on. They're all there. We all know them still today. But there is a big difference here from what the culture understood. And it has to do with the reality that every single human being has to come to their own understanding for with regards to the life. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And it's that we cannot do this on our own. We just can't say no to the temptations and passions and desires that come our way. And we have to be able to own that. And there's no wonder that all wisdom traditions and religions have to deal with this because it's foundational to humanity. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a truth. And we as humans are slaves to whatever has mastered us. Where the Greeks, the Buddhists, and really anyone gets this wrong is when they focus on their self. When they think this is something they can actually do on their own. Because of course, sure, if I want to be free and I can master all these temptations, that would be awesome. But I can't. And no one can. And what happens for every single human since creation who gives in to whatever temptation hits them is, is that now they have to deal with shame. In other words, control of self by the self for the sake of self never works and never will. It will always bring about shame, and shame always leads to hiding, and you cannot have freedom if you're feeling shame and the need to hide. And this is where we get Paul's new and greatly improved understanding of egratia. And we can see it as we look at Galatians 5, 16 and 18, which we just looked at. It says this, So I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But, this is a big but, seriously. But, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So what we see in this passage is that just like all the other fruits, this can't be done on our own. It is dependent on a cultivated relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Now, each week we've looked at this text and we looked at this list of the fruit of the Spirit. The question is, do you remember the last phrase of that? 
it, it gives this whole list of the fruit and then it says something. What does it say? It says this, against such things, there is no law. There is no law with the fruit of the Spirit. And it explains why Paul says in Galatians 5, 24 and 25, which continues after that, it says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So you see, those who belong to Christ have a new life. The old is gone, and the new life is here, faithfully present in us through the Holy Spirit. And as followers of Christ, we are now children of God and no longer slaves to sin and shame. Paul earlier in the same book in Galatians 2.20 says it like this. One of my favorite verses is, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the beginning of chapter 5 in Galatians says it this way. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Friends, this is some really good news. I've been chewing on this for a while and, 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 and just because we all know what it feels like to get stuck in our addictions and our pleasures and whatnot. And this is some good news. This is about chains being broken. This is about transformation and living a different way. It's about a different type of fruit being produced in our life, not one that is marked by control of self, by the self, for the self. And thank God, because we all know this never works. No, Paul is inviting us to walk by the Spirit to keep in step with the Spirit, to continue to own our need for the Spirit, to allow ourselves to be filled by the Spirit because it's only here where we will experience the true freedom of God's love. And so what Paul is doing here is redefining self-control in this word, egratia, and he's defining it like this, control of the self by the Spirit for the sake of the gospel. Control of the self by the Spirit for the sake of of the gospel. And I actually think what's interesting is that Paul purposely places this one at the very end of the list of the fruit of the Spirit, not the beginning like the Greeks would. Why? Well, Philip Kennison, in his commentary that we've continued to use throughout this series, says it best when he says this, because rather than see self-control or self-mastery in the way that many of Paul's contemporaries did as the foundation for all other virtue, Paul's reconfiguring suggests that the self no longer occupies center stage. In so doing, Paul not only stripped this virtue and the self of its previously foundational character, but also instilled this word with a new meaning. The self and the passions that threaten to drive it to excess are not robbed of their power and bondage by a further and more determined exercise of the human will or human reason. Instead, Paul seems to suggest that when our lives are other-directed toward God and neighbor in the ways they must be if we are truly to embody the fruit of the Spirit, the self and its twisted desires cannot remain at center stage. 
In other words, the desires of the self are most accurately dealt with and properly ordered in our life, not when we're striving diligently to bring the self under control, but when we use our freedom in the Holy Spirit of Jesus to become servants of God and of our neighbor. When we move outward. Paul basically transforms the meaning of egratia by suggesting that this new life in Christ is animated not by the demands of the self, but by the other directedness of the spirit. And when we understand self-control in this new way, with its other directedness, with it requiring a collaborative work of the spirit in us, and how it reflects God's own other directedness, we see that it doesn't actually contradict the patterns of all the other eight fruit. In fact, it actually reinforces them. Now, here's the thing. Our culture and everything around us basically promotes everything that goes against this biblical idea of self-control. And we all know it. We live in a society characterized by excess, by addiction, by attempts uh, to self-mastery. And although we make jokes about being addicted to things like coffee and pasta and bread and pizza and all things Adidas, which may or may not be some of my list, beneath our jokes, there's uneasiness. Because we, if we're being honest, know that we all have addictive behaviors. And some are more serious than others, but they're all there. And so we might look down on those people who are trapped in in serious addictions to drugs and alcohol or whatever, but all of us know times in our past and our present when we ourselves experience what it feels like to be enslaved to things. We all, every single one of us know what this is like. And this is why our culture has a 12-step program for pretty much everything. Alcohol, narcotics, overeating, sex, work, debt, gambling, even dealing with our emotions like anger. Our culture is driven by the pursuit of pleasure or the whatever floats your boat, as my mother-in-law would say. That's what we're driven by and we're promised not only the freedom to pursue happiness, but also the freedom to define what constitutes happiness, right? That's the country we live in, the land of the free. So for lots of people, happiness is equivalent to experiencing pleasure, meaning for many, the pursuit of happy, happiness is easily transformed into the pursuit of pleasure. And it's this tendency when coupled with pride that many people take in being driven about pretty much everything that they do that offers up this very straightforward recipe for excess and addiction. And in a culture uh, where freedom is widely understood as freedom from restraint, right? The combination of being driven and yet having little guidance about what is good to be driven about encourages people to become enslaved to their own private pursuits of pleasure. And that's where shame and hiding gets even more powerful. And so with all of this, it's easy to see how what Paul is suggesting will look completely different to the way of the world. Because no matter how you look at it, a life dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure or even the suppression of pleasure is by definition going to focus on the self. 
And as a result, it can't at the same time be a life focused on the other, whether that be God or our neighbor. And so just like all the other fruit we discussed, we need the Holy Spirit in our life for this to be cultivated. It won't just happen. And so this idea of egratia not only needs the Holy Spirit, but it needs the other fruit we've been looking at. In other words, we can't just automatically just start cultivating egratia because such a strategy is basically promoting this whole idea of self-mastery, which would only empower fuller, fuller entrenchment of our very own self that actually needs to die. So if our lives come to bear the fruit of egratia, it will not be because we've strained to control and direct those passions and desires. Rather, this fruit's going to come about by being the natural byproduct of the Spirit's work in our lives. Meaning when the Spirit produces the other eight fruit in our lives, it will also produce the fruit of egratia because the other eight already require a displacement of the self in order to thrive. Which is again why in order to fully experience the real fruit of the Spirit, which is love, you have to have all of these distinctions fully present. Now I want to say something before we move on. This is not to say that yourself, your identity, your character, the things that make you who you are, are to be squelched. This is about flourishing. This is about putting the things that are the struggles and embracing something so you can flourish. It's saying no to something and saying yes to something else. And that yes is the spirit. And when we say yes to the spirit, it's there where our flourishing, as we're specifically designed to do, starts to happen. So this is not to say who you are by yourself is bad. It's to say who you are has so much more flourishing to experience when you are engaging with the Spirit. Now, with that, saying that the way this egratia comes about is through the production of these other fruits and it's the byproduct, does that mean that there's nothing we can do to develop this aspect of fruit in our life? And so what I want to do is kind of give us a couple ideas Um, because I do think there are ways for us to do so without it being just a self-driven kind of crazy thing. I actually believe the number one single most kind of important venue for cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, this particular one, but all of them, is through the community of a gathered worship experience. And if you've been at any of the sermons during this series, you've heard this over and over again. It's why we say thank you for your presence and participation, even online. It's, it's why we are so excited to getting back to in-person services at the end of the month. It's here in the gathered church experience where we receive the important lessons in being other-directed. And two of these things have big implications for the practice of egratia. And the first is that good worship helps us develop a theology of pleasure. It helps us recognize and guard against our tendency to turn inward and to pursue those things that only bring pleasure to the self. And if you think about it, we worship because God is worthy of our worship and because scripture and tradition teaches us that God takes pleasure in our worship, which is why worship is, first of all, focused on what pleases God. But here's the thing, if God created us to worship, 
then we will experience pleasure from doing it. It's the same with serving our neighbors. These are things we are designed to do at our core. And when we do them by the power of the Spirit, the byproduct is experiencing true pleasure. And so what this means is that worship, when rightly understood and practiced, will shape and reorient our desires. And so how are you at worship? How are you engaging in worship? You see, when we're, we're gathered together in the presence of God the God who created us, we listen again to the grand story of God, which I have an image of, but it's this, this story of God with us, God for us, God in us, and God through us. And it's this season that we go through every year reminding us of this big story. And this story frees us from the necessity of kind of spinning our own stories with ourselves at the center and frees us to locate our lives within God's story. Which is something we've been saying over and over again. It's that worship transforms our way of thinking and living. Now the second benefit of this corporate worship experience that in fact forms our egratia is this idea that worship also helps us engage our body. And if you think of it, worship should be more than just knowledge, right? More than just hearing and engaging the mind. It should help us understand that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so again, Kennison in his commentary says it like this. Just as bread and wine are transformed into more than bread and wine in the Eucharist, thereby sanctifying part of God's good creation for our even higher purpose, so full-bodied worship ought to facilitate the offering of all we are, including our bodies, to God as a sign of God's recreative and transforming work. Authentic worship of the God who created us as embodied beings and who will resurrect us as embodied beings ought to engage our full bodies in worship to make possible the sanctification of what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, and what we touch. In other words, God doesn't call us to worship, into worship, to the denial of our embodiedness, but to a sanctification of it through the Spirit. Let me say that again. God doesn't call us in worship to the denial of our embodiedness, but to a sanctification of it through the Holy Spirit. And what's really cool about this is that worship isn't something that just happens on Sunday. Worship is something we can do all the time. And so, yes, when we are gathered together in community, we experience and engage with God in a unique way that I think is one of the most effective ways to help us cultivate the fruit of the Spirit. But it's not limited to Sunday. We can worship through our online platform, just like we are right now. We can worship through our regular reading of the text in in our core groups, through prayer, through the practice of spiritual disciplines, through the use of spiritual gifts, through serving others, through engaging with uh, what's going on in our community by looking at creation and celebrating and so much more. This is why when we engage with God, as we've said, we're transformed. It's where we're reminded of our need for God, And that we can't do this life on our own. It's where we collaborate in cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. And it's where we are able to start living out 
our lives with egratia, ones that are lived out with the control of the self by the Spirit for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Talked a lot. We need to stop. And so with that, may we be men and women who are being transformed by the Holy Spirit as we keep in step with the Spirit. May we experience freedom in the Spirit as we cultivate the fruit of the Spirit for which there is no law. And may we be lights to our community as we humbly live out this countercultural way of life for the glory of God. Amen? Now, I'm going to invite Brian and Jessica to come back. They're going to play instrumentally for a bit to allow us some space to ponder what we've heard. And, and as they do, I want to give us a couple things to think about as far as reflection and some application. And so if you'd be willing to, the best way to share those thoughts is through our online connection card. And you should find a link in the online platform and on our different sites for you to do so. It's just a great way for us to hear how you're connecting and engaging with these things. So question number one, have you ever felt guilty for not doing a better job of exercising self-control? which we all say yes. Let's just, let's be really honest. We're all there. So then the question is, how might Paul's displacement of self-mastery offer you a different way of thinking about these? Number two. These are all in the notes section, by the way, if you want to read them there, and they'll be posted in the platform. Number two. Take some time to reflect honestly and prayerfully on the orientation of your life. To what extent do you believe your life is other-directed? And to what extent is your life taken up with the service of self? And how might the Holy Spirit be inviting you to cultivate something different? Number three, especially during the pandemic, how has the practice of worship gone for you? If it's been hard, as it has been for most, what effects have you noticed? For example, if you haven't been able to engage in worship very much, what have you noticed in yourself? And if it's gone well, what have been some of your practices and what's the Spirit been cultivating in you during this time? And finally, number four, as we're bracing ourselves for relaunch and opening up and and being able to be back to in-person worship, how are you feeling about that? As we've been preparing the staff, we've been realizing all kinds of emotions, even in just not even having other people here, just getting ready. We've been feeling all kinds of things. And as we've been talking about the importance of gathered worship, how are you feeling about that? We'd love to hear from you. And with all of these, however you go about answering them, feel free to use this space that we're going to have for a few moments to pray, to confess to own, to give thanks, to receive, to be filled by the Spirit, to dream, whatever you feel called to in this time. And I also want to note that our prayer team is back and live and ready to pray with and for you. All you have to do is click the request prayer button, which is on the left of the chat. And once you do, um, someone will connect with you and, and pray with you in a private prayer chat in the order in which it was received. So please take advantage of that as well. Um, I'm going to close us with some prayer and then Brian and Jessica will give us some space to reflect and then we'll join together with one last song of response. Thanks for sticking with me. Let's pray. Father, Son, Spirit, we just um, 
collaboratively, corporately, even in our, our own places, we just stop again and we just say, we need you. We can't do this life without you. And we're reminded of it as we breathe because it's a gift. This breath that we have is a gift. It's not anything we've done to deserve. We can't make it keep happening, God. You give it to us as grace. And you fill us with your spirit. We ask you to fill us to overflowing and help us to be the men and women you've designed us to be. Help us to flourish through your spirit. Help us to collaborate with you in cultivating the fruit of the spirit. And not just for ourselves. Help us to be other directed as you are God. Help us to see how we can serve others and serve you with these. Give us dreams, give us vision, God, and those things that feel like struggles for us, um, that we feel shame, that we feel like we must hide. We pray that you would lavish us with your grace. Help us be reminded that our self, our old self has been crucified and risen in you, that we have a new life in you, Holy Spirit. And we ask God that you would empower us to live as you would design, to say no to that one thing so that we could say yes to the flourishing that you have for us in your spirit. God, and I just, I am so looking forward to being in the presence of my friends in worship. And I deeply miss it. Um, And yet I feel all kinds of emotions about it as well. And so God, even in our day-to-day as we go about before we're able to do this, help us to worship you. Find ways to worship. Help us to be reminded of your presence, not just on Sunday, that we might experience the transformation you have for us as we go about our day-to-day. We love you and thank you for the opportunity to be together, to learn together, um, and to worship together and to pray together. And we ask your blessing on the rest of our time. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.